What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and my guest today is Janice Lynn, the founder and president of the Green Hydrogen Coalition. As promised, today's show is part two of back-to-back episodes about green hydrogen. My hope is that this episode, coupled with our last episode with Michael Ducker from Mitsubishi Power, will give you a better understanding of the current power and promising potential of green hydrogen. Today, Janice and I delve into the details of various green hydrogen initiatives underway around the world. And something tells me Janice knows I like to ask guests for bold predictions, because when I asked her for her bold prediction about the future of green hydrogen, she offered up a detailed and wide-ranging vision of how green hydrogen is poised to play a larger role in everyday energy generation and consumption. So get ready to hear that from Janice. Looking ahead, our next episode after today will feature a conversation with Michael Rucker, the founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. Michael and I are going to cover a lot of ground when it comes to what's shaping today's renewables industry, so I'm looking forward to chatting with him to hear his insights. And as a reminder, if you like the topics we cover here on the Renewable Energy Smart Pod and want to stay in the know about the people, technologies, and trends that are powering the energy transition, head on over to smartbrief.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter, the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. All right, before I kick things off with Janice Lynn from the Green Hydrogen Coalition, here's a quick word from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is working to solve society's most pressing challenges through global integrated engineering. MHI has built a breadth of technology, talent, and innovation to implement world-leading low-carbon solutions today and achieve a carbon-neutral world by 2050. MHI, move the world forward. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. My guest is Janice Lynn from the Green Hydrogen Coalition. Janice, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So first of all, let's tell me a little bit about the coalition. How long ago were you founded and what kind of work does your organization do? So the GHC, as we call it, was founded in October of 2019. And we founded the GHC as an educational 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to advance the green hydrogen economy. And, you know, our unique angle on this is that there is a way to accelerate the production and use of green hydrogen simultaneously and its use in multiple sectors to achieve scale. So the goal is use commercially available pathways to make green hydrogen today, aggregate demand and scale it as quickly as possible, because by achieving scale, that's how we can drive down the cost. I got you. So like I mentioned, we're here to talk green hydrogen. So let's just set the stage for a second here. How is green hydrogen differentiated from other forms of hydrogen in the market? That's a great question to start because there's a lot of confusion there. And uh, green hydrogen is hydrogen that's made from non-fossil fuel feedstocks and does not use fossil fuels in its production. Most people aren't aware of this, but hydrogen is an industrial commodity. It's been around for many, many decades. It's used all over the world, but most of the hydrogen used today is made from fossil fuels. And the really great news is there are other ways to make hydrogen that involve renewable resources. All right. So then what areas and uh, what industries is there, do you see the most potential for green hydrogen? Are there some that are where it's already being used, you know, widely and kind of ramping up and others where it's more nascent? 
Yes. So in this country, in the United States, hydrogen has been a target, an alternative fuel option that has been worked on for many decades. Uh, You've probably heard of hydrogen fuel cell cars. There are fueling stations being put in in many states around the country. So there's lots of progress on that front. The challenge with that application, it's very high value, but there's just not a lot of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And um, as it's growing, that's great. Our angle is a little different, and we're uh, approaching hydrogen and trying to accelerate applications of green hydrogen that can scale in mass scale very quickly. And the foremost one we're looking at is using green hydrogen as an energy storage solution for power generation. Recently, the the administration has had some proposals out about these hydrogen hubs. Is that what you're talking about here? And how do those function? Yeah. So a hydrogen hub is basically a targeted location where you can aggregate demand. Maybe it's for a fueling station. We happen to believe that power generation can scale demand much more quickly. One power plant can use a whole lot of green hydrogen. And where storage comes in, bulk storage, is that hydrogen is a really convenient way of storing low-cost renewable electricity. And what's different today from maybe even, I don't know, 10 years ago, is that renewable electricity is so affordable at the margin. It's the lowest cost form of electricity that you can buy today. The only challenge is when you need that electricity is not necessarily when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. And you can use that electricity to split water. It's called electrolysis. And then you end up with hydrogen and oxygen. That hydrogen is a storage mechanism for storing that low-cost, abundant wind and solar. You just need to put it somewhere. It can be stored in a pipeline, in an above-ground container, or in an underground geologic storage facility. I had Michael Ducker from uh, Mitsubishi on uh, last episode, and we spent a little time geeking out about the salt caverns uh, where hydrogen stored. <laughs> so that was kind of a fun conversation to just kind of imagine But then getting back to the renewable sources that are kind of generating or helping create green hydrogen. So uh, wind and solar. And is there enough generation at this point? Or is that a concern that, you know, those are already being used for current sources? Is there enough online now to build out green hydrogen? Or is that all kind of part of the growth process? We are blessed, this country, with basically unlimited amounts of really low-cost wind and solar. Uh, especially in the Southwest United States. We've got a lot of wind resources in the West. Those resources can be used to make uh, a zero carbon fuel. And so how does the storage work is you use that really low cost renewable electricity, split water, you make the hydrogen, you store it. It can be stored indefinitely. And by the way, there are salt caverns that already store hydrogen in the United States. So this is not a new technology. It's just that they store gray hydrogen, hydrogen made from fossil fuels. And soon we're going to start storing hydrogen made from renewable energy. The reason I call this stored hydrogen storage is because once you have that hydrogen stored, you can then turn it back to electricity at a later time whenever you want. It can be converted back into electricity with a fuel cell. So that's the technology that most people have heard of. Fuel cells are very are very small. They're modular. You can put them anywhere. They can provide a really great resiliency benefit, support microgrids. 
You can also convert that stored green hydrogen back into electricity through, you know, a traditional gas turbine, like the ones that you see installed all over the country. Pretty much all of the gas turbines that are installed around the country can today combust a blend of hydrogen and natural gas, and several manufacturers are commercializing turbines that can combust 100% hydrogen in the near future. Okay, and I want to kind of dig a little deeper on, on the existing infrastructure, right? So what is the current network or pipeline system set up that could distribute hydrogen around the country? Is it already where it's got to be? Does it have to be expanded a little bit? Okay, so in terms of green hydrogen hubs, we're working on one right now. It's called Hydeal Los Angeles. And so that is an active project. We've submitted a response to the Department of Energy's request for information under their hydrogen earthshot. And we're hoping that Hydeal LA will be the country's first significant green hydrogen hub. Los Angeles already has, I want to say, 15 to 20 miles of hydrogen pipeline right there near the port of LA. Another factoid is the United States uh, leads the world in terms of hydrogen pipeline. I think we have more than 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipeline, mostly in the, in the Gulf region, in and around Texas, primarily connecting oil refineries, because that's one of the largest users of hydrogen today. And of course, that infrastructure is all storing, moving, and using hydrogen made from fossil fuels. Our vision is to create new infrastructure that uh, can move mass scale quantities of green hydrogen to hubs, strategically targeted locations that have been um, designed for multi-sectoral green hydrogen offtake. And so LA is a perfect example where we have strong demand for green hydrogen for power generation. We have a number of oil refineries that could convert to green hydrogen. We have more fueling stations for fuel cell EVs than anywhere else in the country. And of course, there's lots of other industrial uses of green hydrogen, including someday using hydrogen as an alternative to fossil fuels for shipping. Okay. So what are some of the big challenges standing in the way of the growth of green hydrogen? I know you said we've already got you know pipelines in place that use hydrogen produced via fossil fuels. So, so that piece is in place. I guess it's just got to, you know, the flip has got to get switched or the blend has got to get changed. But what other, what other challenges, you know, when the GHC kind of looks at the, at the map of, you know, what are the big hurdles in front of you? What are your top two or three? Yeah. So the infrastructure that exists today is primarily uh, servicing the existing hydrogen industry, which is hydrogen made from fossil fuels delivered to offtakers in the oil and gas industry and uh, ammonia and fertilizer industry. There is an opportunity to repurpose some of that infrastructure for green hydrogen. One of our challenges is the locations of where we can make the green hydrogen at very low cost at mass scale are not in the same places where this infrastructure is today. So we are going to need new pipelines or the ability to inject that really low cost green hydrogen into the existing natural gas pipeline. And there are a number of projects around the world demonstrating that it is possible. In fact, I think if you look on the Department of Energy's website about their high blend project, they say theoretically 20% by volume is theoretically feasible for our existing gas pipeline, but more testing needs to be done. The use of that existing gas pipeline, which is ubiquitous, we have a gas, you know, gas pipeline infrastructure pretty much all over the country. 
that's a really amazing asset that can be used for moving and, and uh, moving green hydrogen and decarbonizing the pipeline. To achieve the green hydrogen economy of where we really want to go, we're going to need 100% hydrogen pipelines. And uh, if you follow Europe's lead, what they're doing is they're repurposing and converting their gas transmission pipelines into 100% hydrogen pipelines. I was going to ask you that question next. What are some of the other countries or regions you know, or specific projects uh, that you, you kind of hold out in the parts of the world that are taking the lead on this? Well, there's a number of countries in Europe. I would say Germany for sure is uh, in the lead. In fact, they just enact, enacted uh, transitional regulation for hydrogen pipelines at a country level, which is very exciting. Australia has also been an early leader in green hydrogen, but their their goal, at least historically, has been around taking advantage of tremendous export opportunities, exporting green hydrogen to energy-hungry nations in the Asian Pacific region, to Japan, South Korea. Chile has announced their intention to also be a low-cost global producer. On the user front, Germany, European Union, there's also a lot happening in the maritime industry, primarily driven by a need to comply with the European Commission's uh, carbon trading scheme. Now, shipping fuels uh, have to decarbonize by date certain. So this is all driving development, demand. Oh, I forgot to mention Saudi Arabia (laughs) is jumping into it as an exporter. You know, our perspective is the U.S., given our abundant resources, renewable resources, should be part of this emerging global trading network, as well as be part of the global decarbonized maritime shipping refueling network, too. We'll be right back after a message from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Now, more than ever, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is committed to creating a low-carbon future. We are decarbonizing power and unlocking the potential of non-carbon fuels while investing in renewable energy technologies. MHI is expanding our low-carbon offerings with developments in the delivery of hydrogen-capable gas turbines and improvements in carbon cycle technologies. We're investing heavily in R&D to bring forward the most innovative and efficient energy solutions for the new status quo. MHI. Move the world forward. We were talking before the break about some of the international developments when it comes to green hydrogen. What can you tell me about the European Hydrogen Backbone Initiative? Yeah, this is a really exciting initiative that is composed of 11 countries in Europe and 12 European gas transmission operators. These 12 transmission operators um, represent and have presented a vision to convert nearly 40,000 kilometers of existing gas pipeline to hydrogen pipeline infrastructure spanning 21 countries. About two thirds of that is based on repurposing existing natural gas pipelines, and then a third uh, would be new pipeline development. Okay, and is there anything on the policy front here in the US that you either wish would be pushed through or that stuff that's in your way or, or helpful things that have been passed recently, or what does the policy you know, horizon look like for the GHC? Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, one of the issues we've been wrangling with is even like, what is the definition of green hydrogen? 
There's different definitions that are out there today at different states. Having a common definition is helpful, especially when you think about eligibility into programs and how you count the emissions benefits associated with hydrogen. So that is one key policy item. So what are the different definitions that you're dealing with? So um, in California, we have legislation that's been proposed at Senate Bill 18 that is intended to result in a clear definition that would be used across applications and pretty much establish a baseline that our different relevant agencies could reference to for the purpose of eligibility into different programs. So where that bill stands is it would be, uh, you know, under the current version of the bill, our Air Resources Board here in California would lead that work in conjunction with other state agencies. Montana has a different definition. British Columbia has a different definition. I think it'll all be harmonized later because different jurisdictions are approaching green hydrogen and from different angles. But at the end of the day, the common denominator is what are the emissions benefits of green hydrogen? And you have to focus on both how it's made and then how it's used. Help me understand this. So is this those different states or British Columbia, the generation source can vary, you know, like, I mean, obviously wind and solar, but maybe like I said, biofuel or nuclear, some of them will include those, some of them won't. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So that's, that's one of the challenges right now is just clarifying on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, like what is green hydrogen? What is clean hydrogen? And how does it fit within the existing range of programs that already exist? And it seems like a simple question, but it's more complicated than it, <laughs> that on the surface, because hydrogen is so flexible, it can be used for so many purposes. It can be used, we were talking about storage, so multi-day, monthly seasonal storage for the power sector can be used as an alternative transportation fuel, can be used as an industrial feedstock, and the state of the market today is many of these applications have different programs and different regulatory jurisdictions that are in charge of these different programs, even within one state. So it's flexibility, which is one of hydrogen's greatest assets, is also one of the challenges when it comes to, you know, how do you fit this new tool into the toolkit? Okay. And you mentioned earlier that where we're generating all this low cost energy is not next to the facilities where we need to kind of move it around. So got a lot of listeners that don't know where on the map we're talking about. So I'm assuming generation is Southwest US, but where else, where across the country does it need to be? Or do we wish it was next to, I guess is the way to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Offshore wind is a really exciting resource. So there's multiple pathways to make hydrogen. We're talking about electrolytic pathways, which is zero carbon or renewable electricity being used to split water uh, wherever you have low cost renewables, whether that's wind, solar, geothermal, nuclear. Uh, You know, there are certain areas of development where nuclear energy is really abundant and not necessarily matched with demand. So again, hydrogen is a great way to deal with that mismatch, especially if you have it on a seasonal basis. Remember, there are other ways to make hydrogen. You can make hydrogen from biogas by reforming biogas through gasification or pyrolysis of organic matter. So anywhere you have a lot of organic waste, municipal waste, agriculture waste, that can happen pretty much anywhere in the country. Okay. And then so 
from a consumer perspective, right? When we're talking about, you know, long duration storage for, for the power sector, is this, this is so, you know, we could cut down on things like, you know, blackouts or things like that when there's seasonal variation in generation of, you know, hydro, like right now, there's a lot of dams uh, and lakes all over the country, specifically in the Southwest that are having trouble generating. So hydrogen can play a role filling that void when it, whenever it comes up. Absolutely. And um, one of the great aspects of hydrogen, especially if you're, you, you know, have a place to store it, like your existing gas pipeline system or a salt dome, is it doesn't go bad. It can sit there indefinitely. You know, we've always had strategic petroleum reserves. Why not have strategic renewable energy reserves in the form of hydrogen? It's also distributed. So, you know, you can buy a pressurized container that's certified that you can store hydrogen for a very long time. You can put it in microgrids or where you have remote locations that might uh, face power outages from time to time. You know, with the onslaught of these wildfires, the grid is getting intentionally turned off in some locations for days at a time. It would be nice to have an alternative fuel for those pockets. Okay. And then we've talked about a couple of, you know, different industries that kind of at the forefront of this. So, but I just want to kind of hammer that in. So what are your top, you know, three or four industries where you see, you know, the use case? We talked about power, a little bit on transportation. Like what else out there could see the most biggest benefit from green hydrogen? Well, no particular order, but I, we mentioned uh, an alternative for maritime shipping that can either be liquid hydrogen or green hydrogen that's made into ammonia. Ammonia is NH3. It has a lot of hydrogen in it. And ships can be powered by ammonia. Turbines, basically, it's, a, it's an alternative fuel. Ammonia is also an important ingredient in making fertilizer. So while we're making green hydrogen as a shipping fuel, we might as well make a little more and decarbonize our agricultural industry. Hydrogen is also an ingredient in making synthetic liquid fuels. So we could potentially be producing decarbonized liquid fuels, even for aviation. And by the way, for short haul flights, there are fuel cell planes being developed that can run on 100% green hydrogen and fuel cells. Yeah. And those are some of the sectors that already kind of contribute a large portion of greenhouse gas emissions. So, and now you mentioned uh, earlier what you have going on with Hydeal in Los Angeles. So can you expand on that for our listeners and tell them what that is and, and where that's headed? Definitely. So Hydeal LA is the first initiative to create, architect a green hydrogen ecosystem in a targeted location. And the goal is to design this ecosystem at mass scale. So if you're starting from scratch, how do we achieve a low delivered price point? And our target was $1.50 per kilogram delivered. And you start by aggregating demand. And part of the reason we started in Los Angeles is we have the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. So this is a very progressive, the largest municipal utility in North America that has a stated goal of getting to zero carbon. The city of Los Angeles announced that they want to achieve that by 2035. And they are the largest off-taker of a coal plant conversion in central Utah. It's getting converted from coal to green hydrogen. So that's part of the solution but it's not enough of a solution. If LA is uh, procuring dispatched energy made from green hydrogen from Utah, they also need to convert their in-basin power plants to green hydrogen. So you can think of them as 
sort of the beachhead off-taker around which we're aggregating other off-takers of green hydrogen to get to mass scale. Once you have visibility into mass scale demand, it becomes much easier to plan how are we going to make it, where are we going to make it, and what does the system map need to look like to get that mass scale green hydrogen into the LA basin as fast as possible. Okay, can you tell me more of the details about the Western Green Hydrogen Initiative? Sure. So earlier we were talking about the importance of policy in market design and enabling green hydrogen projects to be financed means that you need to have line of sight into how you're getting paid and how you get paid for developing green hydrogen projects and multiple applications is a function of market design. It's the policy and the regulations that exist in any one state. And in any one state, there's multiple jurisdictions. And of course, we all know that to make the green hydrogen economy that we're envisioning affordable, it's not a one state play. We have to look regionally. And unfortunately today, because green hydrogen is a new tool in the toolkit, there's not necessarily a you know, a forum for focusing on this and focusing on market development. So that's why the Green Hydrogen Coalition partnered, teamed up with the NAT, with NASIO, the National Association of State Energy Officials, and the Western Interstate Energy Board. That's 11 states plus Florida, Louisiana, and Ohio, two Canadian provinces, to collaborate to focus on green hydrogen infrastructure development. And we call this initiative the Western Green Hydrogen Initiative, or WIGI for short. It's truly a state-run, state-led initiative. And uh, I encourage you to check out our website. We have a whole portion of the website dedicated to the work of the Western Green Hydrogen Initiative. And they'll be looking at modeling. They're looking at policy best practices. And it's really inspiring the level of collaboration and the conversation that's happening at a regional level among the state and provincial leadership. I guess you always want to have a marketplace a market in place for all the hydrogen you're going to be trying to, to get out there and across the country. So something like that makes perfect sense. And what kind of pushback are you seeing on the policy front? Obviously, politics is in, involved in a lot of things uh, in this country these days. So um, is this one of those things you see people coming together on because there's stakeholders across various states that can benefit? Or what does that picture look like? Absolutely. And that's why we are feeling extremely bullish about this, starting with the leadership of the Biden administration, you know, the fact that the Department of Energy has focused on hydrogen as its first earth shot, very encouraging. We have proposed legislation for investment tax credits, production tax credits for hydrogen. And at the state and provincial level, we're seeing leadership in many pockets around the country, from Florida to British Columbia, here in California, in Utah. This is not a partisan issue. There's a lot to love about hydrogen, clean hydrogen, green hydrogen. One of the key advantages, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, is it enables us to beneficially reuse a lot of the infrastructure we already have and to generate more jobs in the process because we are part of an emerging global industry for green hydrogen, and that makes the pie bigger. What kind of competition is there on a lobbying front? Because I, I envision if hydrogen is going to be kind of replacing gas in these pipelines, then the gas lobby has got to be kind of a formidable opponent or what does that crossroads look like? You know, it, it's interesting because hydrogen 
can be used as an alternative to fossil fuels. So a lot of incumbent industries see hydrogen not as a threat, but as an opportunity to stay relevant even during and after the energy transition. Gas pipelines by themselves, you know, are hugely valuable, right? You, I mean, they have right-of-ways, they can move huge amounts of energy from one place to another very cost-effectively. The issue is what's inside them. So I personally feel very excited about the alignment and what's possible today. And when you come to the gas pipeline, for example, you know, one of our challenges is we have to get through some technical demonstrations to give each local jurisdiction comfort that it's safe, that it's possible. It's happening all over the world. But, you know, our observation is every local jurisdiction has to go through that testing process on their own. And that just takes some time. I want to pivot real quick and talk about an educational resource you have from the GHC. Uh, We have a lot of listeners to this podcast that are new to green hydrogen. You guys produce the Green Hydrogen Guidebook. What resources went into that and what kind of feedback have you gotten about that resource? When we started the GHC, we noticed that there was no like singular source of information about green hydrogen. And so the guidebook was our idea. You know, we're an educational nonprofit of putting it in one place where folks could easily access, you know, folks with a non-technical, no background in hydrogen and look in the table of contests and access helpful information. That guidebook has been downloaded thousands of times. We're in the process of updating it because all the time as we go along, more is known, more is revealed. I think the next update will be happening in the first quarter of next year, but it is available for free to all your listeners. We also have on our website many, many recorded webinars that are available to the public for free on a variety of topics, everything from Hydrogen 101 to what's happening with the European Hydrogen Backbone Initiative. Okay. So, you know, getting things to mass scale, um, I want to ask for a a bold prediction on where you see the hydrogen market, say five or 10 years out. And I know given your position, you're probably bullish on this, but go ahead and just paint that picture for me in in five or 10 years. (laughs) Okay. Here we are. So we we can revisit this in some years to see if the predictions are right. So I say this and cross my fingers that my prediction is Hydeal Los Angeles will be one of the four green hydrogen hubs or clean hydrogen hubs that the U.S. federal government wants to see advanced in the near term. We're able to develop the infrastructure and deliver mass-scale hydrogen into the L.A. basin to satisfy those applications. The port of Los Angeles, maybe the port of Long Beach, becomes the first port in North America to provide green hydrogen refueling options for maritime shipping, partnering up with Singapore and some other progressive parts in the Asia Pacific. We see the first um, green hydrogen passenger flight happening between Los Angeles and maybe nearby cities, and LAX starts offering decarbonized green hydrogen fuel for long-haul flights. At the same time, because of all this aggregated demand and now the low delivered cost of green hydrogen, we achieve really low cost in the LA basin, heavy duty trucking and vehicle travel gets accelerated. So we see a mass conversion of diesel trucks to hydrogen fueled trucks, green hydrogen fueled trucks, and the emissions and the port of LA is and that whole region goes from being a, a, you know, basically a disadvantaged 
you know, poor air quality area to one of the most pristine air quality locations in the country that also has tremendous economic development and opportunity to export low-cost green hydrogen to Hawaii and Japan. So that's the vision that we would like to see happen within the next 10 years. Wow. Sounds like you've put some thought into this. (laughs) And it's entirely doable, technically. It just takes, it comes back to what you were saying. It's the willingness, this alignment, and uh, and really what we're finding more and more at the end of the day, it's about policy. Anything else we should share or inform our listeners about? Either, you know, trends you see in the marketplace or initiatives from the GHC? Well, just, um, you know, the space is moving very quickly, and I encourage listeners to sign up for our newsletter. And regardless of where you're listening in or calling in from, there is an aspect of the clean energy transition and specifically green hydrogen where you personally could have a role to accelerate progress. And if this topic excites you, don't wait. We need lots of help. And uh, the more folks that are advancing progress together in the right direction, the faster we'll make progress. So thank you for listening in and you know, just listening to this podcast and becoming more familiar with the issues is step number one. But I believe that everybody has a role to make progress happen faster. And, you know, there's no time like the present. Well, thank you very much, Janice. I really appreciate your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Okay, now it's time for the pod brief segment of the show. And I want to touch on something that's certainly been in the news the last few days. Hurricane Ida. In addition to the human toll Hurricane Ida has taken on the Gulf Coast, it has also ravaged vital infrastructure. Blackouts in the region are expected to last for days, and the oil and gas sector is already warning drivers across the country that they might feel the financial pinch from Ida at the pump. All this disruption got me thinking about how an offshore wind farm might weather the storm if it were in the path of a hurricane as powerful as Ida. After all, some of the areas the U.S. is planning to stand up wind farms off the Atlantic coast aren't exactly immune to hurricanes. So what would happen if a big hurricane hit a big wind farm? Well, I did a wee bit of research, and one thing I found wasn't very reassuring, while another thing was very entertaining. For starters, the most recent research I could find indicates most offshore wind turbines have been designed to withstand wind speeds that accompany a Category 3 hurricane, and maybe even a Category 4. But what about a Category 5 hurricane? Well, it turns out that a wind farm taking a direct hit from such a massive storm could be a huge problem. That's troubling, because it's not hard to imagine the nightmare visuals that would accompany an offshore wind farm fully destroyed by a storm. Equally troubling is the amount of time I imagine it would take to bring that lost power generation back online after the storm. Of course, some really smart people are hard at work trying to design wind turbines that can withstand a Category 5 hurricane. And trust me, I'm going to try to bring some of them on this show to talk about their progress. But the fact remains, we're not there yet. So here's hoping we can very quickly design turbines so strong that Category 5 doesn't spell catastrophe. Now, the one entertaining study I mentioned came out in 2014, and it was put together by a team of researchers from Stanford and the University of Delaware. You can find a link to this study in the show notes for today's episode, but here's the gist. Researchers ran computer simulations to see if a wind farm could potentially reduce the severity of a hurricane 
by acting as a sort of buffer, a buffer that would weaken the wind speeds of the hurricane and diminish the accompanying storm surge. In the case of Hurricane Katrina, the researcher's model found a wind farm could have reduced wind speeds by between 80 and 98 miles per hour and a storm surge by a whopping 79%. That's amazing, right? But then I saw the one tiny, not so insignificant detail from the study that made me laugh out loud. The mythical wind farm the researchers used for their modeling exercise featured 78,000 turbines. That's right, 78,000 turbines, all nestled off the coast of New Orleans. That seems like quite a big, easy fantasy. But look at the bright side. Turbines have grown a lot in size since 2014. So maybe today we'd only need a paltry, I don't know, 50,000 turbines to keep the French Quarter nice and dry. That's all I've got for today. But before I sign off, I want to say a quick thank you to Janice Lynn from the Green Hydrogen Coalition and another shout out to the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of Smart Brief, a future company.